Welcome back to chapter two of our Psych 1A course. Today we will be examining the nervous system and exploring a little bit about how we use brain imaging technology to get this information. So just like with the first half of this chapter, it can be useful for you to have your textbook open or to have the slides open as you go through this. Those visuals can be really helpful in navigating what is a very complicated system of the human body. mindful moment, we are going to really slow ourselves down. You might want to close your computer so you can't see the screen or flip your phone over so the screen is not bothering you. Try to remove distraction as much as possible. And take a moment, maybe you want to close your eyes to notice your body's natural rhythms. Notice if your heart rate is fast or slow. Notice if the muscles in your body are tense or relaxed. Take a moment to notice if your thoughts are racing or if they're slow. Now place one hand over your heart and one hand over your stomach and take three deep cleansing breaths. Letting your stomach inflate with air and exhaling slowly through your mouth. As you complete your deep cleansing breaths, take a moment for some gratitude. Maybe it's gratitude to yourself for listening in to today's podcast, for prioritizing your education, Maybe it's gratitude for your body for hanging in there during a difficult time. Maybe it's gratitude for another person or the universe, for a pet, a plant, a favorite food. Whatever it may be, identify something that you are grateful for. And as you're ready, Come back into whatever physical space you're in so we can jump into chapter two. The human nervous system is broken down into two categories, the central nervous system and the peripheral nervous system. The first one we will examine is the central nervous system. This is the central processing unit. The central nervous system is composed of only two elements of the human body the brain, and the spinal cord. The brain is the organ that interprets and stores information. It sends orders to your muscles, glands, and your organs. And then your spinal cord is a pathway that connects the brain and the peripheral nervous system together. The spinal cord is actually a long bundle of neurons that carry messages between the brain and the body, and it's responsible for those very fast, life-saving reflexes. A classic example of this is if you have ever touched a hot stove or if you've ever put your hand over like a candle or a flame. So if you were to touch one of those hot things, an afferent neuron, which accesses the central nervous system, 
will send the pain message up to the spinal column, where it enters into the central area of the spinal cord. The interneuron in that central area will then receive the message and send out a response along an efferent neuron exiting the central nervous system, causing your finger to pull back. It all happens so quickly. If the pain message had to go up to your brain before the response could be made, the response time would be too long and you would end up having significant significant damage done to your finger. So think about all the different times in your life where you've had this amazing reflexive action. This is one of the little survival mechanisms that the brain and body have developed in order to help keep us alive. Because that really is our brain's number one job, stay alive. It's going to do whatever it takes. So the reflex arc does not get processed in the brain. It's an instantaneous reaction that's processed in the spinal cord in order to help us prevent injury and preserve our life. It's clear to us that the central nervous system is incredibly important. It's so valuable in our ability to be alive and to thrive in our everyday lives. So we want to do whatever we can to make sure that it is functioning and it's healthy and we are protecting our brain and our spinal cord. But sometimes life happens. Accidents happen. There's so many stories of car accidents where a person's spinal cord was damaged. What happens when you damage the central nervous system? Thankfully, there are some fail-safes in place. One is neuroplasticity. When we say plasticity or plastic in psychology, what we're talking about is the ability to change, the ability to adapt. And the brain and the spinal cord are able to do that to a certain extent. Neuroplasticity is the ability of the brain to constantly change the structure and function of cells in response to trauma. This can be something like if there's a car accident or any type of physical accident, the brain may be able to change its structure and learn new things. Anytime we learn something new, we're changing the neurological structure of our brain in a physical, physiological way. It is an organ that is capable of growth. When we learn a new skill, we form new neural pathways or new little highways for those neurons to travel in our brain. Another concept that's a fail-safe in the central nervous system is neurogenesis. This is the ability to form new neurons. This mostly occurs during prenatal development, so when we're in the womb, but it also happens in lesser levels and in some areas during adulthood. So this is where we see people may have some lingering brain damage after an incident or an accident, but they're able to make some progress. They're able to get some of their functioning back, but most of the time, not all of it. We also have stem cells. These are special cells found in all body tissues, and they're capable of becoming other cell types when those cells need to be replaced due to damage or wear and tear. This is why stem cells are so sought after in research because they can become other cell types and uh, can be used when we need to replace after damage or if our cells just get kind of worn out. Stem cells can come in and add some new life to those areas. So we've covered the reflex arc, and now that you've had a couple of minutes to learn about the central nervous system in other ways and forget about the reflex arc a little bit, I really encourage you, maybe pause the recording at this time, or if you have someone with you, 
take the time to try and explain it to them. One of the ways that the brain learns best is actually when it teaches the information to someone else. So using this information about the brain and how it works, teach someone else about the brain and how it works, specifically the reflex arc. The other half of the nervous system is the peripheral nervous system. You'll see it abbreviated with the letters P and S for peripheral nervous system. This is all of the nerves and all of the neurons that are not in the brain and the spinal cord. So this would be all of your touch receptors. So the, your fingertips and your hands, being able to feel your clothing on your skin, that's the peripheral nervous system at work. It allows the central nervous system to communicate with sensory systems of the body and control your muscles. So this is a very elaborate network, a very complex system. It's broken down into two subsystems, the somatic nervous system and the autonomic nervous system. The somatic nervous system, remember that the word soma means body, and it's the beginning of that word somatic. So the body nervous system. There's the sensory pathway, this is nerves coming from the sensory organs to the central nervous system. These are afferent neurons. Remember, they are accessing the central nervous system. They take information from your five senses and feed it to your brain. There's also the motor pathway. This is nerves coming from the central nervous system to the voluntary muscles. These are the efferent neurons. They're exiting the central nervous system. So they're relaying the messages from the brain to the muscles. Voluntary muscles that can be moved at will, like your hands and fingers, your feet and toes, and your arms and legs. That is all efferent neurons taking information from your brain to your muscles. The somatic nervous system controls the voluntary muscles of the body that you can move at will, and the autonomic nervous system controls involuntary functions of the body. The word autonomic has auto in the beginning of it, which means it does it on its own. You don't really think about making your heart beat. You don't have to tell your kidneys to do their job or to tell your white blood cells to fight off an infection. Your body's doing all of that work for you in the background without you really thinking about it or being aware of it. This is the work of the autonomic nervous system. This nervous system is broken down into to smaller nervous systems as well, the sympathetic and the parasympathetic nervous systems. The sympathetic nervous system is primarily located on the middle of the spinal column, and it's named sympathetic because it is in sympathy with one's emotions. This is what allows us to respond to stress. The physiological response is exacerbated or it's enhanced by stress hormones. So the system is going to be acting in place already. It's already designed to function. But if stress hormones are involved, it's going to do its job two times over or it's going to be a lot more quick to do its job. So stress hormones like adrenaline and cortisol are highly influential to the sympathetic nervous system. The stress hormones are released by the adrenal gland they fit into the receptors and stimulate them to work even harder. 
So cortisol and adrenaline especially are going to make the sympathetic nervous system function a lot harder. What we notice on a biological level when the sympathetic nervous system is engaged is that the pupils in your eye dilate to let in more light, take in more sight sensory perception so that you can have a full visual field of the situation you're in. We also see the heartbeat accelerating, making sure blood is getting to your muscles so that you can respond appropriately. We see the stimulation of glucose. Glucose is fuel for your body. So when glucose is stimulated, when it's released, it prompts your body to take action. We also see the stimulated secretion of epinephrine and norepinephrine when the sympathetic nervous system is engaged. What's interesting to note is that digestion and excretion are shut down, or at least they're inhibited. This means you're not digesting your food and you're not, to put it in gentle terms, able to go to the bathroom when your sympathetic nervous system is fully engaged. This is because these functions are not necessary for survival in that situation. So any food that you may have eaten just sits in your stomach like a lump. This is one of the reasons why people experience stomach aches under stress. Any food that they've eaten hasn't been processed because the sympathetic nervous system is engaged. And so the food is just kind of sitting there in your stomach. There are times where you've heard stories of people pooing their pants or maybe excreting in a seriously concerning, stressful situation. Uh, A story that I have is one of my friends was in the wilderness on a hike and needed to answer the call of nature and go to the bathroom. And all of a sudden, a bear appeared out of nowhere. And instead of everything freezing up physiologically in that moment, he excreted immediately and was able to then address the bear that was in front of him. So why does that happen? This is a physiological response the body has when it's preparing to either fight or flee. It wants to get rid of that heavy lump that's sitting around in your body. You see this in animals in the wild as well, that if you have like a group of gazelles that are all grazing and a lion appears out of nowhere, many of the gazelles will poo and then they will run. It makes them lighter and more agile. They're able to run faster. Imagine trying to go for a run after you've eaten a really heavy meal. You don't go very fast and it feels terrible. So in a extremely stressful situation, your body may choose to get rid of that so that you can flee or fight in that situation with much greater efficacy. So if the sympathetic nervous system is in sympathy with our emotions and it's preparing to fight, to fly, or to freeze in a stressful situation, the exact opposite is the parasympathetic nervous system. Its job is rest and digest. It restores the body to normative functioning after arousal. So again, the sympathetic nervous system is all about arousal and being uh, under an extreme amount of stress or under a stressful situation in which your body is going to respond, the parasympathetic system wants to bring it back down. It's also responsible for day-to-day functioning of organs and glands, and it signals adrenal glands to stop producing stress hormones. So when your sympathetic nervous system is engaged, you're in fight, flight, or freeze mode, the parasympathetic nervous system is going to come back in 
and signal the adrenal glands to stop producing adrenaline and cortisol, we need to calm down. We want to get back to baseline. It's not healthy for us to have our sympathetic nervous system constantly engaged. So the parasympathetic nervous system comes in, it contracts the pupils in your eyes, so it decreases the amount of light, decreases the visual field a little bit, it slows your heartbeat, and it prompts digestion to resume. Ideally, because the parasympathetic division of the nervous system does all of this resting and digesting, this is the system we want to be active most of the time. But as we live in an ever-changing world and the amount of stress that people endure is increasing and changing over time, what we're seeing is a greater activity in the sympathetic nervous system response. And this is actually incredibly detrimental to our physical health, our mental health, and our overall well-being. We'll get to talk about this more in chapter 11, and this is why chapter 11 is out of order, why the course sequence is chapter one, chapter two, chapter 11, because it ties in very directly with this. So we'll get to talk about why it's so detrimental to our health and also how to combat that so we can get that parasympathetic nervous system re-engaged and have a much healthier lifestyle. The nervous system is a very complicated system of the body As you were listening to this recording, you probably were keeping track of how many times I said, and there's a subsystem in this division and a subsystem of that division. There's a very nifty concept map on page 62 of your textbook, which helps lay out in a visual graphic how all of these things are connected and where those divisions are. Our next stop in understanding the biological perspective of psychology is the endocrine system. The endocrine system is the hormone system of the body, and it functions by secreting hormones, which are a type of chemical, into the bloodstream through endocrine glands. These hormones have the ability to impact our behavior by stimulating muscles, organs, and other glands in the body. And we do know that our emotions are impacted by our hormones. Some hormones may influence brain activity. So some hormones may elicit an excitatory response, or they may elicit an inhibitory response. The master gland of the endocrine system is the pituitary gland. It's located under the brain, just below the hypothalamus. The hypothalamus controls the gland by influencing the pituitary. The pituitary gland influences growth and sex hormones. These are also implicated in cognitive changes as we grow. So it's not just our ability to be taller or for our shoulders to broaden as puberty hits, but there are also cognitive changes that are influenced by these growth and sex hormones as well. A major hormone that has been getting some notoriety in the world of endocrine research has been oxytocin. It's known as the love hormone. It stimulates contractions during childbirth and lactation, but it's also responsible for that feeling of attachment or love, of trust and bonding with another person.
it's not only humans who have oxytocin, it's also present in other mammals, specifically dogs and cats. And this is why people report feeling such a strong connection with their pet. It's not just because they're cute and they love unconditionally. It's because they also produce and receive oxytocin. So when you look into uh, a loved one's eyes, whether it's an animal or a person, that oxytocin release is stimulated. So back to our endocrine glands, the pituitary gland is that master gland that influences the rest of the endocrine system. So here are some of those other aspects of the endocrine system that get a little honorable mention in our class today. One is the pineal gland. This secretes melatonin, which is associated with biological rhythms like your sleep-wake cycle. Another is the thyroid, which regulates metabolism and is associated with growth. The pancreas is another one that secretes glucagon and insulin, and it regulates blood sugar. The gonads are sex glands, like ovaries and testes. These regulate your sexual behavior and reproduction, but it doesn't fully control this. The brain does that. So your gonads may influence some of those feelings or urges that you have, but the brain does play a big role in the actual decision-making around that. So it's not fair to blame some of our misconduct or our maybe errors that we've made on our gonads. Our brain still played a significant role in that. And the last gland that we'll give a little nod to here is the adrenal gland. This secretes over 30 different hormones to deal with stress, regulate your salt intake, and provides a secondary source of sex hormones. Part of what makes the biological perspective in psychology so fascinating is that it's really a newer area of study because for the first time, we're really able to utilize technology to be able to see the brain and to have a live feed of what's going on to better understand these electrical impulses that are happening and how the brain is functioning in a living person. So if you think back to the history of psychology, it's been quite a while that psychology has been in our thoughts, but the only way we could examine the brain was in a deceased patient. There was no way to really uh, cut open the skull of a living person and get any usable data that would be meaningful. Uh, those people would usually die during the procedure from infection or from, you know, poking their brain uh, with different instruments and things in an attempt to gather scientific information. One of the ways in which we understand and study the brain is through some seemingly odd measures. You may have seen some of these on TV before where, especially if you're into medical shows, there's almost always at least one patient where they cut open the skull while the person is conscious, they're awake, and start poking and prodding around in there just to kind of see what happens. This is something that we do, although admittedly it's not very common and there's a considerable amount of risk involved. But it is something that happens to understand what's happening in the living brain. And that's something that's used when imaging is not going to be conclusive or not going to be able to give us the information that we need. One of these kind of unusual methods is called lesioning. So what happens, we use this in animals as well as with people, that the person, the test subject, is anesthetized and given medication for pain. And then an electrode, which is this thin wire or little probe, 
is inserted. So as you can imagine, inserting an electrical current into the brain is a risky thing to do. And lesioning is a pretty risky way of examining the brain or in treating different areas of the brain. So in contrast to lesioning, there's a less harmful way to study the brain by temporarily disrupting or temporarily enhancing the normal functioning of specific brain areas through electrical stimulation. And then we see what the changes are in behavior or in thinking in that test subject. So the procedure of stimulating a specific area of the brain is pretty similar to what happens in lesioning, but they use a much milder electric current in this research, so there's no damage to the neurons. In lesioning, they are intentionally trying to destroy some neurons, and there's a lot of pretty complicated reasons for that, and we'll get into it when we talk about the corpus callosum. Uh, but for this method, the electrical stimulation of the brain, it's a procedure called ESB. It's an important technique in animals and in humans, but only under very special circumstances that has really helped us understand how the brain works and to give us new directions for therapy and treatment. There is a whole cluster of non-invasive strategies to study the brain as well. These typically involve the patient or the participant wearing a type of helmet or electrodes attached to the scalp, and the researchers are targeting specific areas of the brain, trying to focus on specific regions of function, rather than getting a whole big picture of how the brain is functioning. Now, this can be effective in getting the information that's wanted, and it uses a much lower level of electricity than these other more invasive strategies do. So it is in some ways less damaging to the brain itself. But what they have noticed is when you focus on one area of the brain in this way, that you can actually damage other areas of the brain. So if you're focusing on oxygenation of a certain aspect of the brain, the nature of the test or the assessment, the helmet, the electrodes, may actually be decreasing the oxygenation of blood in the brain in other regions of the brain. So there's a cost-benefit analysis that has to be completed with any type of these studies that we're doing on the brain because it is such a high-stakes type of testing. It's not like where a phlebotomist, when they're learning how to do their job, they may miss a couple of times with the needle or they may not be as skillful with it and cause a little bit of bruising in their patient. There's not a whole lot of room for error when we're doing these brain scans and brain tests. Because even these non-invasive techniques where we're stimulating the brain from the outside, we're really manipulating it using these external sources of electricity, is still really risky to damaging the brain. It's much more preferred to use neuroimaging techniques. These are things like CT scans, MRIs. It's more like a still capture a photo of the brain rather than getting this real-time feedback. But it allows us to get this information, which is still highly beneficial to the field of psychology and to the patients and participants that are hoping for some answers without having to risk their overall safety, health, and well-being. So the first type of scan is a computed tomography. This is a scan that uses computer-controlled x-rays of the brain to capture those images. There are pictures of this on page 69 of your textbook. 
A CT scan can show stroke damage, tumors, injuries, and abnormal brain structure. It's also the imaging method of choice if there's metal in the body because it does not use magnets, which can, of course, be very detrimental to someone who has metal in their body, whether it's a piercing or a pacemaker or any other type of device, maybe even surgical pins. Those are all a big no-no. They don't mix well with magnetic resonance imaging. Because the M in MRI, magnetic resonance imaging, means it's a big, giant magnet. If you've ever had to have an MRI before, you might remember that it's not the most pleasant experience. You're essentially, as the patient, placed on this bed that is electrically moved into a giant tube, which makes these really horrific sounds, like a giant hammer being smacked right next to your head. It's a very small little space that you're in, so it is very stressful and anxiety-inducing. It's not a pleasant experience. But it does show very small details within the brain images that we get. So for a CT scan, we don't get really clear, defined, detailed pictures, but with an MRI, we do. And you can see a side-by-side comparison of those two on page 69 of your text. Having a CT or an MRI is a great method of getting a still image, a picture of a brain. But there are times where we need to have more understanding around the functionality of the brain, understand what it's doing more so than how healthy is the tissue or how is the structure of the brain. And there are some pretty harm-free ways that we can do this by really just examining what the brain is doing rather than poking at it and seeing what happens. These are the EEG, the MEG, and the PET. These are all three different ways we look at brain functionality. The EEG is the electrocephalogram. It was first used in humans in 1924. And what they do is they have these electrodes that are kind of spongy on the end. And then they have this solution that's kind of cold and thick. It's kind of gooey. And so they put that cold, gooey solution on the electrodes and then adhere it to your scalp. And oftentimes they'll ask you a series of questions or have a series of visual stimuli. And the electrodes are sending electrical information from your brain to a computer that graphs it out. And so they're able to see what your brain waves look like. So they can tell how your sleep is, how your memory is functioning, if you're having seizures. I actually remember having an EEG when I was very young. I think I was eight years old. And there was reason to believe that I may have been having seizures at the time. There was a seizure seizure disorder in the family. So I went to my doctor and they decided to have an EEG. So I remember the cold, gooey solution and having electrodes on my scalp, which was very strange as a child. And I remember the different images and things that they were showing me. It was a very weird experience. It felt like being in a sci-fi movie. But they were able to take the information from the electrodes that ran through the computer, illustrated brain waves, and they were able to definitively say, no, your daughter does not have a seizure disorder. Everything looks good. So for the MEG, this is magnetocephalography. This uses devices that are very sensitive to magnetic fields called superconducting quantum interference devices. Nice mouthful there. These are contained in a helmet-like device that is placed over the individual's head. 
Meg, the MEG, has many applications and is being used to differentiate dementia disorders and to explore cognitive processes in autism. The final type of mapping function that we'll talk about is the PET, the PET, positron emission tomography. The functional neuroimaging methods that have been discussed so far rely on electricity. But in positron emission tomography, the PET scan, a person is injected with a radioactive glucose, which is a kind of sugar. The computer then detects the activity of brain cells by looking at which cells are using up that radioactive glucose and projecting the image of that activity onto a monitor. So when you see pictures of this, they're very colorful. And the certain colors indicate where there's more cell activity going after that glucose. So they can look at a scan and say, oh, this region's really yellow and this region comes across as really red. So we know that there's this level of activity here compared to this other region, which has a blue green coloration to it. Those cells aren't as active. So they're able to differentiate then which regions of the brain are more active when being stimulated in a certain way. So an MRI, as we discussed earlier, is just a photograph, a picture, so we can see the brain's structure. But what we can do is a functional MRI, fMRI, where the computer can track changes in the oxygen levels of the blood, so we can get feedback on the brain's functioning that way. So what they do is they take information about where the oxygen is being used, and they place that image, kind of overlap it with uh, just a scan of the brain, so they can see which areas are more active during specific tasks. So they'll have a patient, a participant in an fMRI machine. They'll show them images or they'll ask them to tell stories, reliving memories, or respond to questions from a story that they've been read. And they'll see how the oxygenation in the brain changes to see which areas are more active than others. They've done this with trauma survivors. There was a story of these, it was a married couple, a man and a woman who were in an auto accident, a car accident. And one of them was experiencing symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder and the other was not. So they had both of them do the fMRI because they had gone through the same accident, had the same experience. One of the two, when they were talking about what had happened, the storytelling part of their brain was active, but that was about it. The other person who had the symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder, the storytelling part of the brain was active, but so was the emotional center and the part of the brain that detects fear. So it was more clear to see how that person was reliving that experience or how that experience had impacted their brain compared to the other person who essentially was serving as the control in this situation because they did not have symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder. For this final portion of our lecture on chapter two, we're going to be looking at the structures of the brain. It will be very helpful for you if you can actually look at the structures of the brain. So I advise having your textbook or the slides open during this time so you can match up what's being discussed with what you can actually see. 
We'll first look at a region that is known as the hindbrain, or kind of the back of the brain. This is sometimes also referred to as being the reptilian brain or the primitive part of the brain. So these are going to be things that are your basic level of functioning and surviving. The first up is the medulla. This is that first large swelling at the top of the spinal cord. It forms the lowest part of the brain, which is responsible for your life-sustaining functions that you're very grateful you have and don't have to think about because they're part of your autonomic nervous system. Things like your heartbeat, your breathing, swallowing. Next up on our tour of the brain is the pons. This is that larger swelling just above the medulla. The term pons means bridge, and the pons really is the bridge between the cerebellum and those upper structures of the brain. It plays a part in sleep, dreaming, and your left-right body coordination, as well as arousal. Remember that in psychology, when we say the word arousal, we're not always talking about sexual arousal. We're talking about your body being alert, paying attention, really attuned to what's going on in the moment. Now, if the pons and the medulla are designed to help you pay attention and attend to those things, the reticular formation is the exact opposite. It helps you tune out some of the information that you don't need to be consciously aware of all the time. This is part of the phenomenon where you can technically see your nose all the time, but if you had to focus on your nose being in your line of sight 24 hours a day, or at least when you're awake, that's a lot of your brain space being dedicated to something that's not really that important. Your nose isn't going to walk away. It's not really even essential for survival. So the reticular formation comes into play and kind of tunes out that sensory input. So if you wanted to, you could focus on your nose, but you have to actually think about doing it because the reticular formation is kind of blurring that part out of your conscious awareness. The cerebellum lies at the base of your skull, behind the pons, and below the main part of your brain. And it almost looks like a little mini brain in itself. And that's why it has its name cerebellum. It means little brain. So this is the part of the brain that controls motor movement, mostly involuntary motor movement. If you think about sitting upright in your chair, or maybe going for a walk. You're not consciously thinking through all of those muscle contractions and small motor movements that need to happen. It's on autopilot. Your cerebellum is taking care of that for you. So the cerebellum does these motor movements. It's also helpful in balancing and our coordination. Research is looking into, but doesn't have a clear idea quite yet, but there's an idea that the cerebellum is also involved in higher functioning cognition, potentially with things around speech and memory. They're still researching those things, but they have found some connections around visual perception. And this might make sense because our sense of balance and our physical awareness is highly reliant on our visual field. The next division of brain structures we'll look at is the limbic system. The limbic system is also known as the emotional brain. It's a group of several brain structures that are located primarily under the cortex, that's the outer rind of the brain, and involved in learning, emotion, memory, and motivation. The first structure within the limbic system is the thalamus, which means inner chamber. The thalamus is 
the part of the limbic system that's relatively in the center of the brain. It relays sensory information from the lower part of the brain to the proper areas of the cortex and processes some sensory information before sending it to its proper area. Damage to the thalamus might result in loss or a partial loss of any of these sensations, hearing, sight, touch, or taste. There's research that also suggests the thalamus may affect the functioning of task-specific regions of the cortex. As an example cited in your textbook, a study of children with dyslexia found abnormal connections between the thalamus and brain areas associated with reading behavior. The hypothalamus is a small part of the brain, but it's extremely powerful. It's located just below and in front of the hypothalamus. It regulates body temperature, thirst, hunger, sleeping and waking, sexual activity, and our emotions. It sits right above the pituitary gland. You'll remember that's the master gland of the endocrine system. The hypothalamus controls the pituitary, so the ultimate regulation of hormones is actually due to the hypothalamus. The pituitary gland gets a lot of credit for all the work that it does in the endocrine system, but it really responds to orders from the hypothalamus. A similar sounding word, but a very different structure in the limbic system is the hippocampus. The hippocampus plays a role in our learning, our memory, and our ability to compare sensory information to our expectations. A very famous part of the limbic system and one that is in the spotlight of a lot of science research right now is the amygdala. The word amygdala means almond, and it's named as such because, well, it looks like an almond. It's pretty small and it has that shape. The amygdala is responsible for our memory of fear and the way we respond to fear. It's oftentimes referred to as the alarm center of the brain. It's scanning the environment to see if there's anything that's unsafe or going to threaten our existence. The reason why it's so famous in the realm of psychology and research right now is our emphasis on stress and trauma. So as we've been studying more about trauma and stress and how the body responds to it, we're recognizing that the amygdala is a very active player in that response system. And we know that it works closely with the hippocampus. It's actually even located very close to it. There have been case studies of humans that have damage to their amygdala, and they show a decreased response to fear. For those of you who may enjoy some adventure sports or watching adventure sports on TV, there's a great documentary called Free Solo, which is all about a world-famous rock climber named Alex Honnold. And what he did was climb to the top of El Capitan, which is a 3,000-foot rock face in Yosemite Valley at Yosemite National Park. And he did all of that, 3,000 feet of vertical climbing, without any protective equipment. And people thought, man, this guy is insane. What is he doing? He's, if he makes one little mistake, he could fall to his death several thousand feet. So they were curious, is Alex Honnold somehow different than the rest of us? And they did some scans. They did some testing with his amygdala. And what they discovered is he has a reduced fear response. His amygdala is less active than other people's are. There's also been research that suggests activity in the amygdala impacts 
are hippocampal neuroplasticity. So remembering that the hippocampus is responsible for formation of long-term memories, and that neuroplasticity refers to our ability to change. So activity in the amygdala suggests that there could be changes in our memory underlying the influence of stress on fear memories. We do know that fear memories tend to have a much stronger response than non-fear-based memories do. The third and final division of brain structure we will look at is the cortex. You've heard those words, the cortex, referenced throughout this chapter, and you'll continue to hear them in your study of psychology. Remember that the cortex is the outer covering or the outer rind of the brain. It's what you usually think of when you imagine what a brain looks like. You're imagining the cortex. The cortex is divided into two sections. They're called cerebral hemispheres. There's the right hemisphere and the left hemisphere. These are connected by a thick, tough band of fibers that are called the corpus callosum. Those words literally mean hard body. The corpus callosum is a very tough uh, bit of anatomy. The corpus callosum allows those two hemispheres to communicate with each other. Each hemisphere can be roughly divided into four sections or lobes by looking at the deeper wrinkles on the surface. These wrinkles are called fissures, and the lobes are named for the skull bones that cover them. So let's talk first about the occipital lobe. At the base of the cortex towards the back of the brain is the occipital lobe. It's right where your skull is about to connect with your spine. That very back bottom part of your brain is the occipital lobe, and it is responsible for your visual cortex. It's the primary visual center of the brain. Next up are the parietal lobes. These are at the top and back of the brain, just under the parietal bone in the skull. So if you had sunglasses on top of your head and they start falling backwards, that point where you're going to go grab them, where your skull starts to kind of slope down and back, that's the parietal lobe. This area contains the somatosensory cortex, an area of neurons at the front of the parietal lobes and on either side of the brain that are responsible for processing information from our five senses, the somatosensory body sensation cortex. So it's responsible for processing our skin sensations and our internal body receptors for touch, temperature, and even body position. Next on our tour of the lobes is the temporal lobes. These ones are really easy to find because they are right next to the temples on your face. That's why they're called temporal lobes. These contain the primary auditory cortex and the auditory association area. It seems like for most people, the left temporal lobe is particularly involved with language. But there are also parts of the temporal lobe that help us with memory, learning, and processing visual information. As we learned with Phineas Gage having a pole go through his face, that it can be helpful to have different regions take on similar jobs just in case damage occurs to one area. Imagine if the uh, pole had gone straight through the only part of his brain that could control memory. That'd be a really difficult recovery process. So that's another survival strategy of the brain. Share the love. 
Next up is the frontal lobe. This is another one that's easy to find because it's right behind your forehead. These are responsible for our higher mental functions like planning, our personality, memory storage, complex decision making. And there are some language pieces up there as well. It also helps tremendously in controlling emotions by its connection to the limbic system. What's interesting about frontal lobes is that they don't really start growing and maturing until we're seven years old. So think about little kids that you know. They're not good at time management. You tell them something's happening in five minutes and they have no clue what that means. They have no concept of time. You could tell them that Christmas is tomorrow and they would totally believe you, even though I'm recording this in the middle of the summer. They also don't have very good control over their emotions. If you've ever had to spend a day with a toddler, you went through that whole range of emotions multiple times in the course of a few hours. It's not until age seven that the frontal lobe really kicks it into high gear, starts growing up, and gives us some more ability and capacity in these really essential areas. So that starts at age seven, but it doesn't stop maturing until age 25. Most of the brain, it matures pretty quickly. It's a survival thing. But the frontal lobe is a slow cooker when it comes to maturity. So it doesn't fully mature until we're 25, which means up until that point in time, we're still pretty immature as far as brain growth and development goes. It's why teenagers are still bad at planning. They're still highly emotional. And they're still not very good at organization and planning. So for those of you who are listening at under age 25, you still have the glorious excuse that your brain has not fully developed yet. So people should cut you some slack. And for those of you who are listening who are over the age of 25, you have the glorious honor of carrying around a fully matured and developed brain. Unfortunately, we are now also responsible for all of those things. You've probably heard the question or maybe even wondered yourself, are there such things as left-brained people and right-brained people? We usually say that to mean some people who are more gifted or talented with spatial reasoning and math and logic, or people who are more gifted with artistic and creative type of endeavors. In our study of the structure of the brain, we learned that there are two hemispheres that communicate with each other and are essentially the same. They're symmetrical. They're equal. We call this bilateral symmetry when these two sides are equal to each other. So to answer the question, is there such a thing as a left-brained or right-brained person? No, not really, because the brain is using all of its parts to work together as one cohesive unit. There is, however, an exception to this, but it's not something that we typically think of. The exception is when we have to sever the corpus callosum. Remember, the corpus callosum is that really tough bundle of fibers that holds those two hemispheres together and allows them to communicate with each other. Well, in certain situations, particularly with seizures, there is a procedure in which the corpus callosum is intentionally severed in order to contain the neural damage from seizures to one part of the brain. 